This is On The Grid, powered by theracetalk.com on mypodcasthouse.com. All right, time to have a chat about what was a pretty exciting weekend up on the mountain, the Bathurst Six Hour, and to tell us all about it, Richard Crail and Mark Water. Hello, hello, gentlemen. Hello, boys. How are you? Excellent. Mark? Evening. Fantastic. Love it. How good was it? Six hours of Bathurst. Uh, it was amazing to watch. Unfortunately, I couldn't get up there, so I watched a fair bit of it on the television, and anything that happens around that, track up at Mount Panorama is spectacular and this was no exception. Yeah, it, it's every race is, is great at that joint, doesn't matter what it is. And what we've seen in the last, well, almost full year now is is real endurance racing, not interrupted by safety cars, real pure races with um, with a lot of green flag running with limited safety cars. And, and it was very much the same on... Uh, what we saw on Sunday at the High Tech Horse Bathurst six hour, three safety cars only for the race, less than half an hour in total on the yellow. Um, the longest race in, uh, or fastest race in six hour history record distance. Um, and it backs up what we did at the 12 hour earlier this year. And then last year's 1000 being the fastest ever Bathurst 1000. So um, I, I loved it. I, I love that event. Uh, I'm, I'm probably biased because I've, I've been involved with it since that day dot and called them all. But um, I, I just love the the laid back nature of it, but the fact that when they get on track, it's as important to those in it than any any other Bathurst race. So it puts on a great show, and the vagaries of production car racing mean you get cars breaking and you get teams pulling heroic efforts to fix them overnight and things like that, which I think is uh, is terrific. And Mark, I think the other great thing about it is also is that it it actually is an achievable race for. Joe Blow up to the bloke who's got his $150,000 BMW M4. I mean, you can run a Suzuki up there if you like. Absolutely. We saw that on the weekend. You know, there's a lot of weekend warriors whose sole purpose in life was to one day race at Bathurst and they managed to do it, which was awesome to see. I mean, it just uh, get a few blokes together and uh, it doesn't really matter what sort of cars you had. I mean, there are a few old BMW M3s, there's the Mazda 3s, there's all sorts uh, down throughout the pack. At the front, of course, we had some rocket ships, and the problem is that they're all production cars, and they're all highly, highly stressed. So Mm. they're all just running that balancing act between blowing up and not blowing up sort of thing. So uh, further to Rich's point, the lack of safety cars, I think that just allowed those couple of BMWs, the M3 and the M4 at the front, to just get a lap or two ahead of the field. So, you know, that sort of grandstand finish that we've had recently wasn't really there. It was still intriguing right down to the end because you just didn't know what would happen. I mean, you look back 12 months and Barry Clinton uh, had literally had the wheels fall off with seven laps to go. So, you know, it was never, ever in the bag. But, um, you know, there was a whole heap of the, you know, more standard sort of production cars just a couple laps off the pace and they were all really close together. So... It's one of those things, really, isn't it? I mean, you can't have it both ways, can you? Not every race can be a thriller. The thing I like about it was that you get the um, you get the vagaries of production car racing, and you're still even with a car a lap ahead because they're a production-based car. You don't know if they're going to crap themselves five laps from home. So you've even with a car dominating the race, there's still that potential that they're going to expire, or like Berwick last year, have a wheel fall off, or going into limp hold mode, or whatever it might be. So there's still that underlying 
you know, drama there that, that creates a bit of tension towards the end, even if a car's got a race shot to pieces. So, uh, no, it's it's a cool thing. Yeah, it certainly is. Uh, Richard, you came up with a, an interesting stat on your Twitter, I think it might have been post-race, uh, the fact that you've been there for all uh, the three latest big races, of course, the Bathurst uh, 1000 back in October of last year to the 12 hour this year to the six hour as well and I think that you you spoke about the number of laps that haven't been affected by safety car and the race most races have run pretty much full distance yeah well, I, I touched on it just now it's 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 been remarkable the last three Bathurst Enduros the three majors that we've had in a row have all been record-breaking one way or another in terms of the pace of the race and the lack of interruption from yellow. The, the Bathurst 1000 went a touch over six hours and one minute. It was um, comfortably the fastest ever Bathurst 1000, 10 minutes quicker than the next best, 6.11. Um, 312 laps in the 12 hour was comfortably a record distance in that race. Uh, both laps and obviously distance elapsed over it as well in the 12 hour duration. And then it was the same in the six hour. What I think a bit of that is is quality and quantity, and it's finding the right balance. And both the 12 and the 6-hour have been blighted by by going after or, or inadvertently having massive fields, and that's all wonderful. But what massive fields bring, especially in class racing, is a lot of, a lot of carnage and safety cars, and, um, and especially at Mount Panorama, where it's so difficult to work your way through traffic and so blind and so treacherous and all the things we know and love about the joint. So finding that happy medium, which if you look at the 12 around the 6 hour this year is about 44, 45 cars, um, has produced just so much cleaner racing and much less time under safety car. Now, you can't win because people will bitch and moan when there's too much safety car and then they bitch and moan when there's not enough because they don't get that grandstand <laughs> finish. So you, you can't keep everyone happy. But I, I reckon, I mean, no one will complain about the 12 hour and as being a dull race and it wasn't because it was the best endurance race I've ever called. Um, and the six hour, was it a thriller? No, it wasn't. But because of the nature of that race, there was enough going on in the field. You had the class C lead change six minutes from home. You had dramas after the race with the class C leader. Um, there was enough going on to keep it interesting. Yeah, I don't know if you could change too much from the format. Of course, it was the two BMWs that uh, took the honours, Berwick Linton and Tim Lay in first place, Grant Nagin Sharon in second place in the M3 and the M4 respectively. But one of my favourite cars, the Holden VF HSV Club Sport of uh, Lillis, Callahan and Holt, coming in at third place, I thought it was a fantastic effort. Well, Rich, yeah, that tell you what, what a happy pit crew. Like, they never would have expected. I mean, they would have been hoping for a top 10 finish, really. I mean, and I think they were legitimately would have been happy with a top five, mm. but they were stoked with a third. They were absolutely over the moon. The first time the V8s finished on the podium there in six-hour form, so that was a fantastic effort. I mean, there were so many more fancied cars that, that fell by the wayside throughout. I mean, you just have to look uh, who they they were pitting next to, the uh, John Bowers big HSV. I mean, that was a more fancied car. Um, mm. I mean, of course, you had the Cox Cox and Smith um, Evo 10, which I think legitimately would have been on for a top three before mm. its turbo decided it's had enough. Um, actually caught up with um, Jordan Cox at the Lithgow KFC some hours after the race, getting a As nice bucket of greased chicken. Yeah, so I mean, that, felt, that made me feel a bit better about my life decisions. 
But uh, <laughs> he wasn't cut up about it. I mean, I think he knew that he put on a really good show that weekend and uh, he sort of did everything that he could do. You know, the, the car let him down, but they were definitely on for a top three and I think that just makes him a bit more determined to come back. I mean, yeah, Dylan Thomas had turbo troubles, which they always seem to have some sort of little niggling problem that holds them back, but they would have been on for a good result. Uh, early on, you had the Sewell Fisher BMW M4 fall by the wayside. I mean, that would have been a quick car. Garth Walden had dramas early. They would have been fast. So there were a lot of more fancied runners that uh, didn't go the distance, but... You know, to finish first, first you have to finish, and you know the big, ha- um, big HSV club sport up there on the podium. That was a, that was a really cool thing to see. It certainly was. Uh, I'll tell you what, I've loved playing sport with my kids, played a bit of cricket with my boys at time, but uh, to be able to go racing with your dad, I reckon, is fantastic. And for Dad and Dave Russell, what an amazing effort that is. Yeah, it was. That was really cool. And first time in 16 years that they had the opportunity to do that and they loved it had a, a great weekend away um and won their class comprehensively uh, as to be fair they were expected to do but um they were on for for third place for a good chunk of that motor race as well unfortunately um they had the car just dropped off pace late in the race and i think it went into limp mode right towards the end and they had to give it up to the hsv and full credit to nathan callahan who was driving that big thing who chased them down and passed David Russell, supercar endurance driver and a proper gun in the paddock that we all know and and really like. Um, Terrific drive by them to do that. But, yeah, I mean, really cool thing. They weren't the only combination doing it either because um, Charlie and Alfie Sinisi in the car that won Class C right at the end with Jake Camilleri, another father and son combo. So, And there are a couple in the field. I I really like that part about the race. And, And I think that's why the paddock's got such a good vibe about it as well. It's just really relaxed, laid back, and a real family atmosphere more than I think you get it at any other event at that place. Yeah, it's a, it is. I think it's a bit, it's a bit stressed too. I mean, you had all the strategy play, you had the the different uh, driver times coming into play. I mean, the the three driver combinations versus the two, like there was strategy mm. the whole way through it. There was also that bit of out of drama there with the Sharon pit stop. I mean, yeah. I think we heard a fair bit of your take on the commentary throughout the day. And, I mean, I read the rule book. You read the rule book. Everyone read the rule book. And I think everyone's interpretation was different to what the officials interpreted it to be. Yeah, well, on that, um, I think the Sharons know that they got away with one there because mm. um, that that was, I, I understand, supposed to be a time stop. But they uh, they the message didn't get passed through quick enough. Yeah, uh, for them to keep the car there an extra six seconds, so um, so that was a, a um, an error on their part uh, that that went missing. And to be fair, the punishment is a one lap penalty. They still would have finished second anyway, yeah, exactly. even if it was found out after the race. So it doesn't change anything. But um, I'm, I'm not one to boast, gents, as you know. But uh, I, I was I was right. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty happy with my my interpretation of the rules in the call. So. Uh, I channeled my inner Crompton in diving to the regs, and I'm satisfied that I pulled it off. Geez, and it was uh, it was fantastic to see some uh, professional pit lane reporters uh, throughout the broadcast as well. It was uh, amazing to watch. Yeah, yeah. I don't know where that Mark Walker guy came from, but mm. uh, solid job. A long way off the bench, like really deep off the bench. Like I couldn't <laughs> believe that they could reach that far back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was like uh, the bottom of the end of the fourth quarter, and. 
into injury time and all your players have done hamstrings and that's like the water boy running in. <laughs> I tell you what, though, uh, Brian Vanderwacker, gee whiz, he's a, a good young kid, isn't he? A great talent. He's got a big future ahead of him. Yeah, he did a cracking job on the on the strategy, channeling his sort of inner Mark Larkerman, um, inspired a bit by what we did at the 12 hour with, with Chad Nalon. Um, yeah, he's a, he's a superstar. He's going to take all of our jobs one day. And frankly, I'm okay at it because he's better than it at it than I am but uh, no he was good he uh, he really helped unravel that race and it's a difficult race to read with the compulsory pit stop regulations and the minimum time and um, the vagaries as a set of production car racing and how they work so uh, no did a very nice job and, and full credit to M not a Francesco who jumped on to host the thing as well did a super job so um, really really good my highlight from the pit lane over the weekend was the number 51 Mazda 3 <laughs> now, Rich, yep. you know the story of their Saturday night. So they, they yeah. went and put that thing on the E-Class pole, didn't they? They did. They did. So they, they then had some engine dramas. They well, found a up. wreck. It blew up. They found a wreck in a wreckers in Newcastle. So they drove to Newcastle to pick up this husk of a, rate, of a road car with an engine in it. Wow. Drove it back. How, how late in the night was it? They it was an 800k round trip, and they got back at 3:15 a.m. I think. No. Right. So they then went and plopped that engine in their race car and sent it. So they're just there to be in the race. I mean, they were they're classy. They're the slow, you know, they're the baby car class. They were never yeah. going to win the race. It was just to be yeah. a part of it all. So they've sent yeah. it, and they've um, come in for their first pit stop. Now I've been, you know watching motorsport for 38 years and I've sort of done a fair bit of production car racing stuff and been involved with pit stops for a long time. But uh, that first pit stop of theirs is right up there with the biggest shambles I've ever witnessed (laughs) in all of motorsport. It was... Okay, so first of all, it pulled up to a stop and they've gone to put the fuel in it. Now, it was on the TV... And what appears to have happened is that the coupling wasn't attached to the hose. Oh, no. So it, it just dumped fuel everywhere. <laughs> it dumped all the fuel everywhere. So I'd, I've looked around to see if there's a dead man there, and there, there had to have been a dead man there working the fuel release or else the fuel wouldn't have come out. So, yeah. But they scarpered pretty quick. Like When they saw that there was fuel everywhere... <laughs> It's just splashed all over the film, and it was just, it was just a mess. It was diabolical. Yeah. So the fire attendants, they just they sat there and looked at it. Like every other fuel you film do. you've ever seen in pit lane, you put a bit of foam on it just to neutralise it, just to just so that it's not going to blow up. Because, <laughs> and quite frankly, Rich, this was below your commentary box. So if it went up, you're you're getting toasted. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, Sort of watch that unfold. So we've got, we got this minor flooding happening in pit lane. Uh, a gentleman from the crew went out, popped the bonnet and checked the oil, but he did it in a pair of stubbies, which, I mean, <laughs> it's probably not a tyre compliant for a spectator, let alone someone in a hot pit lane, let alone someone in a hot pit lane covered in petrol. So he's there just... <laughs> I, I didn't see if he was wearing thongs or shoes, but he, he checked the oil. So good on him. Like, you know, it's a... There's a dirty old wrecker engine they've put in the car, so, I mean, you've got to check the oil. So that's fair enough. So while this has all happened, the engine's been turned off or they've stalled it or something. So the exhaust pointed straight down at the pool of petrol. 
So by this stage, <laughs> I've grabbed my cameraman and uh, was sort of positioned at the back of the pit box so that when the thing was going to go up, <laughs> uh, I wanted a scarper with my eyebrows attached because I got a fair attachment to my eyebrow and <laughs> I wanted to take it back to Brisbane with me. But uh, fortunately, when they when they lit it up, it didn't didn't spark and the car mm. ran at the circuit and did another hundred or so laps. Wow. So um, yeah, and they, they, they finished there in twenty sixth. Yeah, and third in class, so they get a trophy as well, which is amazing. And they deserve I mean, a trophy really, by the they, sounds of it. I mean, they probably should have just been doing continual drive-through penalties for the rest of the race, but they, <laughs> the officials just said, "No, nah, look, yeah, you no, guys have bigger problems than a pit nothing to see. penalty. Nothing to see here." <laughs> so that was good That's fun. Great. The other thing, Shebex, is that there were two engine changes completed in the race. Wow! Not before the race, in the race. So, including one in Toyota, Toyota 86, where they literally pinched an engine out of a car in the paddock. So I don't know how the other guy got home, but um, he jumped back in his car and found out had a blown engine. But um, yeah, that, that's how the about the, the Bathurst the Subaru? Look, yeah, they had oh. a parts mule there, and like yeah. they'll they need a skip in to put the rest of that car back into. There's nothing left. <laughs> Slide it off, yeah. But that's that's the joy of that race. It's just um, there's so many stories like that. You could fill a book with it from from one year. To be honest, remember the old green or the blue great race books where they went into in-depth oh. detail of every team. You can't do that these days because nothing happens because yeah. the supercars and all our cars are so bulletproof. But you could write one for the six-hour and you would just fill it with stories like the one Mark's just told us. And there'd be, But there'd be 55 of those from, from the whole field. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. Actually, it's, it's We'd a- have to reanimate. Bill Tucky to ride it though. That's you well, need that's his problem. riding yeah. style to, to make it happen. It's a it's a it, there'd be plenty of stories out there. We've heard heaps of stories about uh, cars that have been picked up from uh, from Hertz for uh, a rally to take the team around, and all of a sudden they've gone back with different battles on and stuff yeah. like that. There's been plenty of that happening. Well, guys, that sort of leads us into a, a, another question, doesn't it? We welcome Dale Rogers also from the Racetalk.com into the conversation. And Dale, we were just talking about the, uh, the the number of manufacturers and the different classes in the Bathurst Six Hour. TCR has been getting a fair bit of traction over the last couple of months, and of course, their first race coming up very shortly up there at Sydney Motorsport Park. Can we expect TCR to possibly be a, a challenger to supercars? Tony, I don't think it will be. I, I think it will find its own space. And, uh, you know, they're heading for a reasonable grid at, uh, at Sydney Motorsport Park and uh, with some, some good names in there, Chris Piffer, Tony D'Alberto, John Martin, Jason Bright, Nathan Morecambe. Um, I think they're going to hit the ground with, you know, round about uh, eight, 16 to 18 cars, which is a really good effort given uh, it's a standing start. Look, the class will take some time to take off. Um, it's interesting to me that, and I'm sure the other guys have commented on this, that supercar teams have immediately put their hands up. Gary Rogers Motorsport fielding uh, four cars, um, two Alphas and two Renaults, and uh, Kelly Racing also uh, with two Opals and two Subarus. Um, so a large portion of the field are being filled by supercar teams, but I think really it's a business model for them. Um, you know, we, we spoke with uh, Brad Jones just recently who runs about eight cars in supercars and the business model of some of these teams now is running multiple cars across classes and this platform provides that. Um, look, I think it's going to be fascinating to see. It hasn't kicked particularly well in England because I think it's too close to the British Touring Car Championship. 
I can't see it being a competitor to supercars, but I think it does fit in the landscape really well. Richard, Mark? Yeah, I, I, why does everything have to compete with each other? And sometimes it does, but a lot of it's just a massive beat up with people going, oh, this is going to be a rival or this isn't. You know, it's not, it's not Carlton and Collingwood. It's not... Uh, it's not a massive football rivalry. It's another category that, that will work or it won't. It's as simple as that. Where so it, do, where it does compete, though, Richard, is obviously there's a limited amount of money out there in regards to sponsoring yeah, of cars it, it, well, and the that, like. That's exactly right. And we're not going to know if it, TCR will succeed for three years because there, there's going to be a point where ARG, who are underwriting the whole thing, go... We are at a point where this is commercially viable or they're going to go to a point where they continue to have to underwrite it at a level that they ultimately don't become comfortable with. And motor racing is filled with stories of this happening. And and Procar is the ultimate example with Ross Palmer, who had plenty of cash, but even he got to a point where underwriting Procar and everything he was trying to do. Now, some would say that maybe he was a bit ambitious at points, but... Um, that even that became too much and it shut down and within a year it was dead. So we're not going to know for a while until the commercial realities of it all sit and whether the brands get involved from a a dealer team standpoint, whether the sponsors like it, whether the TV package works for for going to the market and selling it. Um, So this whole will it be competition thing is is a redundant argument because until they come up with a $200 million six-year Fox Sports TV deal, um, it's not going to be competition. Uh, you know, the, one of the things about TCR is that it's relevant to the car park of all the spectators who come. But Super Touring was as well. And, you know, I see them as very similar. You know, they might be the most awesome thing overseas, but I don't know if the cars really resonate with the audience here in Australia because we've been brought up on this big V8 thing, haven't we, for the past... 30-odd years, or the past forever, really. Um, and I don't know if the racing's going to be the exact same deal as we see overseas, where you've got all the factory pilots with their disposable race cars and they drive them like madmen and crash them at every available opportunity. I think the racing here will be close, it'll be tight, but it won't be that sort of knock-em-down world touring car stuff that we've seen overseas. Tom will tell. Maybe it will be. Maybe they'll go out there and tear everything up and it'll be awesome. But... Uh, yeah, that's something that's going to have to happen, isn't it? Yeah, gentlemen, just before we move into supercars, the other story coming uh, uh, and centering around Bathurst, of course, is the fact that the Bathurst uh, Regional Council has uh, said that they would like to have a fifth race and nominations for expressions of interest closed today. And we see the list of uh, the nominees or the expressions of interest have been uh, released on Speed Cafe this afternoon. Mountain Motorsports, Australian Racing Group, Ontic Sports, Supercars and 24 Hours of Lemons, Australia Race. Uh, Interesting, some of those. Ontic Sports, of course, run the Australian production car series. Uh, 24 Hours of Lemons would be interesting up there at Bathurst. We also heard about a possibility of a a 24-hour GT prototype type race. Uh, Any ideas what may get the thumbs up? No, I I think this is a long way from being resolved. Um, There certainly is some talk um, uh, uh, around it that uh, the people that that put the... um, uh, the, the series in Dubai and it's Centec I think is the company behind it have definitely put their hands up Karina yeah um, 
that would seem to be the most likely thing if if they wanted wanted to expand this twenty four hour sixty seventy but, but car grid into Dale, it. The, the thing is happen. that I see that that GT style thing. We've already got a GT twelve hour. Oh, absolutely. That's what I, mean. I, I don't. I don't think it's going to happen. And that's so, what I mean. I, I'm not sure any of these are really viable. I, you know, the twenty four hour of, of lemons. Well, yeah. Um, I'm not sure that any of them are really. It'll never happen. No, it won't. So I'll, look, I think the expressions of interest are out, but but realistically, you know, I think the, the weekend proved to me that the six hour has got a really solid place on the calendar. Um, the twelve hour has unquestionably got it. The, the supercar event uh, and and the other events that they're running. You know, I'm not sure there is room for another a big event up there. To be honest with you, Richard, you're uh, you're fairly entrenched in that Bathurst. Uh culture having commentated so many races up there well i should probably start that answer shebex by just clarifying that i look after the pr for two events at that joint so slight vested interest in a couple of them but um look i, I think there is room for another event there I, I think it will happen the bathurst regional council is extremely keen to get the maximum use out of that place for a whole raft of reasons the least of which is they sink a heap of cash into it every year um and it's good for the region very good for the region but, like, the 24-hour of, of Lemons is never going to get up because it's far too amateur for a place like that. So if it was me sitting at a desk going through this list, that would be striked off straight away. It just It's it's, it's not even club racing. And the drivers aren't experienced enough. We can go on. 24-hour um, race could probably work, but 24-hour um, races aren't just two lots of 12-hour races. They are so much more in terms of resource to organise and to run and for you officials, need twice you as need. many officials. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and even simple stuff like what we do, you like you need a team of commentators. You need a dozen commentators to call it over the space of uh, twenty-four hours. Because well, I could call twelve hours, but I'm sure as I'm not doing twenty-four. Um, so it, it just simple stuff like that Soft. make it very, very oh, you get stuff. <laughs> make it very, very difficult. <laughs> from a from a supercars point of view. Um, that's a really interesting one. And, and keep in mind that while they they run the 1,000 on their own, they're in partnership with Bathurst Regional Council for the 12-hour. That is a 50-50 JV. So there's a very interesting potential that they could do another significant event with them. Um, so my, my favourite will be that or the ARG CAMS proposal, which one would imagine has a significant TCR component but with CAMs involved would also include the Shannon's Nationals and some of the categories that are involved there. Mark, what would you know the... what surprises me? Yeah, is that there, there wasn't an historic event. Like, could you imagine yeah. if they had, like, all the historic clubs got their stuff together and had, like, you know, you look at what happens at Phillip Island and some of the other big historic events around the place, you throw one of those together at Bathurst, it'd be massive. Yep. Yep, agreed. I'm surprised nothing was, was put together for that. But, but who knows, like, a supercar proposal could could carry a, a significant historic content like that could be part of what they're trying to do i'm not sure i'd be interested to see one of those proposals might have that on tick sport of course they run the australian production cars as we said there's already a production car race there maybe they're looking at something different we'll find out i'm sure over time as to what is what mustangs aero changes dale will kick it off with you i, I, I don't think this was a surprise for anyone but i think what will also won't be a surprise is the fact that the mustangs will still remain dominant well, Tony, I, 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 it's not a surprise, but it's a, I think it's a disappointing outcome. I think that if, even if you look at the analysis that the race took did after Phillip Island, 
Um, what it was showing was that, that all the, the major contenders were a little faster year on year. Now, I know there's some tyre issues and there's all those sorts of things, but the Triple Eight cars were the only ones of the major teams that were slower. Um, interestingly, that the it's been an, it's been a quick knee jerk because if you think about it, go back to January, December and January, this car was touted as being part of the closest um, aero and homologation process that had ever taken place. And everyone was yeah. crying about how even it was, how they'd done the 200k rundown, they'd done all the tests correctly, and everyone was patting themselves on the back. Come round three and round four mm. of the championship, um, you know, we've got to see it, we've got a, a centre of gravity thing, so the weight's moved to the roof. They win again at Phillip Island, now we're going to aero test it. I, I just think this has been really rushed. Uh, I, I really think that Mark Rushbrook has, has nailed it, that he's um, he said that they'll, they'll let the they'll let the racing do their talking on the track but I, I think the under the undercurrent from Ford, the undercurrent from Ford Performance uh, and obviously the teams would be one of, of you know, real question marks as to why this has been done so quickly um, you know we knew Phillip Island and, and the race talk crew have said this all the way along would be a telling result and but the, the team that didn't perform it at, at um, Phillip Island was Triple Eight who are the major competitors to Shell V Power Racing um, so yes, the car is a, is a cracker of a car, the Mustang. It is the most most technically built or technically superbly built car that, that, that the um, championships ever seen. There's no doubt about any of that. But it really doing it at this stage, and you know, with the end plates will be cut, the under trays being cut, the gurney flaps being cut. That's a fair whack of aero in one hit. So for mm. mine, I think it's a knee jerk. I think it's it's something that needed to be looked at perhaps mid season. I know that the rules let them do this. The Mustang is not an illegal car. We need to make that quite clear as well. It's passed every test. But Supercars has the ability to step in at any time and make changes to it. So they've done it. Uh, we're not even a quarter of the way through the season, and it's had two chunks already. Admittedly, the ZB and the Ultima. Well, the ZB has had a, a little chunk as well. But, um, you know, I, I'm disappointed this has occurred. I think I think we needed to get a bit further into the season uh, and then perhaps look at it then. So, yeah, that's my $2 worth on it. I, I don't have a problem, so long as, well, and even then, you know, it's their, their prerogative, supercar's prerogative. Show you they're working out, because, I mean, they've obviously done some working out here. They've done mm. some further CFD. They've done analysis of everything. I mean, they get all the data off every cars. They know exactly what's going on. They're able to yep. break it down so much better than we are looking at Natsoft. So they know exactly yep. where it's at. So... From my my perspective as a fan, I'd love to see the working out. Like, what were the sums that arrived at this? Then no yeah. one would have a complaint. There's nothing you can complain about. You know, if the sums are that now, they'd be the same in six months' time. It wouldn't make a lick of difference, so long as those facts are presented. From Supercar's perspective, do they want to get the pot stirred? Do they want to have people on hashtag VASC talking about this? I mean, you're going to get a lot more chat without showing you working out, aren't you? Yeah. Mark, I think one of the things that came to the fore today was, and the only place it's been mentioned is on the Supercars website, is that the, although it says the, the CFD, the, the computational fluid dynamics work has been done by Supercars technical department, it also mentions its UK-based technology partner, D2H, which is an engineering business in, in um, Birmingham in the UK. Now, clearly, that company has been either employed, sent the data, or 
or have been working behind the scenes for some time. It's the first time I've ever seen them mentioned. And if you if you do look into them, it's it's a very sophisticated business in the UK, and they'd be doing exactly what Ford Performance would have did, done with the design of the Mustang in, in America. You know, different to the tools they're working with. But they've had to outsource this, and it's interesting that it's been done. Now, question would be, why wasn't it done as part of the homologation process? If they had a consultancy business in the UK working for them, why wasn't mm. it done as part of the December January homologation? Yeah, and I think I think what it's exposed is that perhaps supercars are riding on the coattails a little bit of the success that they've had in this area for the last three or four years. And, you know, even with the Volvo, even the AMG won some races, the Nissans won some races. So uh, broadly, you could look at the series for the last five years and go, maybe not 100% technical parity, which is what they're after, but certainly 95, 96%, which is a pretty good strike rate in a category without BOP or the how they manage TCR and GT3 racing. Um, this has exposed all of that, though, because we've never had a point where a manufacturer has come in with such might, with the greatest of respect to Triple Eight and what they did to develop the ZB. Triple um, Eight don't have four performance in the United States working for them. So this has exposed holes in the rule book and the process that supercars, I think, probably looked at and went, nah, it's all right, we've been okay. But this has opened up those doors to that. And, and I think Adrian Burgess and Campbell Little have inherited a problem. And I'm not blaming the previous technical management there at all. Dave Stewart's a switched on guy. Um, but I think I think they've inherited that a little bit and they're, um, they're now being reactionary in how this is managed and they're sorting it out after the fact. And unfortunately, it makes them look silly. I, I kind of like your point though, Walker, about the discussion point because what will we be talking about if this wasn't going on? I mean, heaven forbid we might be talking up Anton Di Pasquale or Todd Hazelwood, how they're going, or how BJR's punching them off their weight. But this this is much, much juicier fodder for media, for the hashtag and getting people rolled up. So it certainly creates more debate and more engagement on it. But uh, I wish they hadn't put out that statement going, it's the, the best aero testing we've ever done at the start of the year, like Dale touched on, because that's sort of, partly responsible for everything that's gone on since. Can I just say a few more things? So no. Yes. First of all, so first of all, the tracks we've got coming up, they're not aero-sensitive. Like, I don't think it's really going to make a difference and certainly not going to make Triple Eight figure out linear springs. No, I mean, we're going to smoke them in Perth. Wing Cup was eight seconds slower than Wing Cup was 12 months ago at Phillip Island, and that's not mm. because the... Mustang has a good wing on it. That's because Triple Eight were nowhere. So yeah. this isn't going to fix Triple Eight's problems. So no. let's just get that out there. Unless they go and sort it out before Barbagallo, you know, there's no there's no excuses anymore, is there? So if McLaughlin does a McLaughlin goes out there and smokes them, oh, yeah. you know. And I think the parity problem's been more McLaughlin than anything else. It's not like the other Fords have been up there pushing McLaughlin. Yeah. It's yeah. just McLaughlin's been on another planet. So now you've got five falcons who are you know if this parity adjustment is a significant thing that's going to slow the cars down you got yeah. five falcons who are going to be nowhere and if it doesn't slow them down they still remain conquering and still remain so dominant is uh, there's nothing well, else to do is there no but but what happens now boys is that is that the sport looks stupid regardless so if if triple eight have magically cured their their suspension issues by barbagello and roll out and smoke them 
then the parity adjustment is too much and they've peaked the forwards back too much and they've been overreacting to it all. If the Mustang goes out and dominates, like I think we all think it will in Perth because McLaughlin was mega there last year, then the parity adjustment wasn't enough and they'll try and bring them back even further. So there's a no-win scenario out of this. The ideal result would be Scott McLaughlin and Jamie Winkup bashing doors in a dead heat in race one in Perth. Um, For the show, that'd be great, but to show that there actually isn't a drama between them at all, but which is what we've been saying since the start of the season, and more so of late with with the excellent analysis of um, of Scott McLaughlin's domination. So, yeah, it's a tough one, isn't well, it? Tough. One, one more thing from me on the ZB Commodore from the start of last year. There was nothing stopping them from making that a Mustang spec rocket ship by using yeah, the, in, the, in the tricks. And, I mean, it, it's not like they drew that in the back of a napkin. They had all the CFD on that as well. I mean, they had different people doing it who might not have worked with supercars before and I think there's something that we can sort of delve into and, and break down a bit because you know you had Ford, Ford Performance designing the Mustang in cooperation with Ludo and I mean Ludo's built I think his supercars have won hundreds of races like he, he yeah. he's on the BF the FG the VF the VF2 like he's been behind some of the best supercars of all time so, I mean, that sort of knowledge, and I mean, you look at Ford Performance, what do they do? They do the GT4 um, Mustang, they do the NASCAR, they do the GT racing, GT40 spec looking thing. So, like, they've got a lot of motorsport spec stuff behind them. Holden, uh, they David Couchy, who's on the ground here in Australia doing his thing, but they relied, they had a, a, another guy come in from DTM with a bit of a DTM background, which Ludo um, had before he came to AAA, but then they relied on uh, Nick Worth's company over in in the UK. I mean, you remember Nick Worth? He was behind Simtech. He did yeah. that on CFT back yeah. in the early 90s when CFT wasn't very good. But um, they do a lot of massive industrial spec stuff. It might necessarily be uh, race car type things, but they do a lot of CFD and all different things. So, you know, they, they've had their, their chance to build their race car. And like we said last week, the, the Commodore, they had a fundamental shift in the balance of that car. All the supercars mm. have 310 kilos of downforce, and that's up to the manufacturer where they put that on the car. I think there's one other thing, the- Mark, also last year, last year that the, the, there was a bit of a, you know, an up, not, not to this extent, but there was an uproar after Adelaide last year mm. um, where, the, where clearly the, you know, the Commodore arrived with composite panels and it was the new era of supercar and everything else. <clears throat> not long after, both other manufacturers were going, were, were granted um, the composite panels for a number of reasons, uh, but they were. And I think that probably uh, stifled the argument relatively quickly, where this year it hasn't. So there's mm. probably some difference in just how this argument has grown to, to the proportions it's in. But uh, I guess we're going to see it uh, in, in Perth, just what actually happens. But I agree, then they're off to Winton. So, again, we need another Phillip Island, I think, to work this out, don't we? Yep. One thing, and Sorry, one last thing. Sorry, I'm... Over here, but they're taking a bit off the gurney, so the thing's going to be a bit faster in a straight line. You'd have to think, like uh, lose a bit of downforce, but taking gurney off it will make the thing a bit faster in a straight line. So they've taken a bit of the rear wing end plate off, so that that you know changes the airflow around the back of the car. I'd want to know how much under tray they're taking off because that's sort of a bit of a crucial thing there at the front of the car. Like if they've taken a massive chunk of the under tray off, that might make it difficult. 
if they're mm. changing that the, the balance front to rear massively that way and taking all that front air downforce off it, that could be a big thing. If it's just a little haircut, eh, whatever. But time will tell, won't it? Yeah, it certainly will. Guys, just a couple of quick things before we wrap it up. Uh, also see that uh, supercars are looking to set a, a Formula One-style team owners-type press conference uh, prior to racing at the Pertech Perth Super Night Race. Uh, do we need it? The, uh, team owners in supercars have always been really accessible to the media, and I'm just wondering whether we need something like this. Yeah, but what you, I, I, I'm in favour of this. I think it's a good idea. And whether it actually generates any meaningful headlines or not, I don't know. But the and, and what supercars have also done, the Friday press conference in the past has been the fastest cars from practice, which generally are the fastest guys in qualifying and most of the time the fastest guys in the race. So it's the same people in every presser. And what they've started doing as of Phillip Island is having discretionary drivers. So you get the fastest, but then pick, oh, look, Anton Di Pasquale is eighth. Let's drag him in. Let's grab Todd Hazelwood in because he was 12th or whatever it might be. Um, and that's a great move. And I think having a, a team owner's forum in there to engage with the media, it's just something different. It yeah. spices it up. Um, and, and I think a lot of it, to be honest, was prompted by Ryan Story filling in for Scott McLaughlin in the presser uh, in the Saturday race in Tassie when Scott was under the weather with the man flu. Ryan dropped in and was brilliant, absolutely outstanding. He's a great media performer and, and just gave heaps of gold. Uh, we use some of it in the um, in the Race Talks Power Rankings after that weekend. So I think that's what they're after. And look, you get Ryan and, and Roland sitting next to each other, who knows? You could get some really amusing stuff going on. So... Um, and we can also we can also perhaps uh, think about what Gary Rogers could wear to it once. It's a great idea, yeah. and it's, I, I agree with, with Krause. It's it, look, Friday has been a problem for the sport for many many years, uh, trying to get, make something out of nothing. Um, a couple of comments like that from you know it's like having the coaches' comments after an AFL game. I think it's a great idea, and hopefully uh, we get some good uh, fodder out of it. Azerbaijan, gentlemen, uh, sees round four of the Formula One circus this weekend. Uh, only been two winners there in the past. A couple of wins to Mercedes with Nico Rosberg when it was a European Grand Prix in uh, Lewis Hamilton. And Daniel Ricciardo, of course, taking the win last year after him and his uh, teammate had a little bit uh, of a coming together as well uh, with Max Verstappen. Thoughts on this weekend, boys? It's a fascinating track because you've got this very, very long front straight into a, a perfect corner. Four cars wide over a kilometre and a half long um, sensation track. Then it winds itself part through the old part of the city. Um, so I think it's a it's a cracker of a track. Last year's race, um, you know, the Force Indias were intent on, on not only hitting each other, but Kimi took one of them out. Uh, Roman Grosjean had one of the greatest spins of all time behind the safety car, blaming someone else who didn't hit him uh, when he pumped it into the into the barrier. And, of course, we had, uh, uh, we've had Vettel and, and Hamilton uh, going at it. But most of all, we had about 25 laps of the two Red Bulls absolutely tearing each other apart. And, um, and Dan, you know, getting the big move from Verstappen and uh, the team basically saying, well, you're both at fault, but you're probably more at fault, Daniel, than, than Max. Um, probably one of the key reasons that the, 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 the contract was signed, to be honest. But, uh, it, look, if it's half as good as last year, it'll be the race of the year. It was just a stunner last year. Uh, no, look, good race. Uh, it, I like it because it's a US-style street circuit and they always provide drama because it's a crazy US-style street circuit. So for that reason alone, they should 
they should do much more of them because it always produces drama, safety cars and a bit of carnage, which F1 lacks on the quite often on these wide, expensive circuits where you can have the world's biggest spin and not hit anything for five minutes. So, uh, yeah, I, I, it's one of my favourite Grand Prix. This, this season's on the edge for me. Um, Bahrain was brilliant. Uh, China was the biggest snooze in the world. So um, uh, another nice race will keep me engaged with Formula 1 for a bit longer yet. And the final word to Mark Walker. Yeah, I'll definitely watch the five-minute highlights on Facebook the next morning, mm. so I can't wait for that. <laughs> Might be the way to go. Gentlemen, always a pleasure to catch up. First time we've all been together. It's lovely. It's noisy. <laughs> Probably don't play the outtakes either, I reckon. <laughs> no, no, we'll leave those out. Exactly. Uh, Richard, thanks very much, mate. Appreciate your time and great work on the weekend. Yeah, no worries. Thank you. Love the six hour and uh, looking forward to prepare. Mark Walker, great work by you on the weekend as well. We'll catch up soon. Yep, back to the bench for me. And thanks, Dale. Always great to have you on board as well. Thanks, Tony. Another episode of On The Grid wrapped up and locked in the can. Of course, powered by the theracetalk.com. Jump on there for all your supercar and motor racing news. And uh, we'll be back with another episode, a preview of Perth, next week, right here on mypodcasthouse.com.